Um, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. We're going to use that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be one underneath the chair in front of you, and when you get it, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be working from today. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and I just uh, am really excited to lean into teaching on Acts chapter 1 this morning. And if you've been tracking with us for a bit, you might think, hold on a sec here. We were in a sermon series on John before, um, before Easter uh, hit, and uh, why are we not back there yet? And that's a great question. Uh, here at Sedaris, what we love to do the week after Easter is lean into an event called the Ascension, the Ascension of Jesus Christ. So on Friday, we leaned into, uh, that's Friday last week, uh, the Good Friday, the death of Christ on Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. But that's not the end of the Jesus story. That's not the end of his Jesus story at all. After all, he's not here. You ever think about that? Jesus isn't here. There's actually another thing that happened called the ascension, the ascension. I mean, it has all to do with his departure, his departure. And um, I actually find that it's one of the most fascinating parts of the gospel message of Jesus, and even the, the Christian movement in general, uh, how the founder who, uh, you know, after being around and doing his kind of ministry for three years, dies and raises again at the age of 30 or 33, depending on which historian you lean on. Um, and then what he does is he leaves. He leaves. And it's completely counterintuitive. Like, he leaves. And the whole movement is based on the fact that he rose from the dead. And then he leaves. It's like, that's the, that's the main piece of evidence, is it not? That, like, this guy rose from the dead and he's going to leave? He just kind of pieces out of here with probably the most important piece of evidence that we could have if we're going to try to convince people to believe in him? Like, what's going on? It's, it's a really counterintuitive thing that happens for that reason. But it's also very strange considering what we typically do and, and, and what founders typically do with their movements. If you want a movement, if you want your movement to continue, you stick around. You stick around. Like, founders stick around hopefully for a long time. And then when founders, when they do want to retire, what do you do? They did it at Amazon two years ago. Jeff Bezos wanted to retire. What'd they do? He said, hey, Jeff, can you stick around on the board? Doesn't actually leave, right? He's still there. He's still calling the shots to some extent. And so Jesus leaves. Both he's the, the central piece of evidence for the Christian faith, his body, gone. But then also we, we no longer have this charismatic, incredible teacher who just beautifully knows how to address each and every circumstance that comes up for the followers for, his, for him and his followers. Like, that's gone as well. So we lose the evidence and the founder. How strange. No other movement is like this. How strange. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, wow, well, I guess I've never really thought of that before. Actually, I haven't really contemplated the ascension much before at all. And, and don't worry, it's not really your fault. It's not really your fault. In fact, the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John at least, they don't talk about the ascension at all, at all. In Peter's first sermon on Pentecost, which is just a page after here in Acts chapter 2, in, in Peter's first sermon, he just kind of lumps the ascension together with the resurrection in a single sentence. So it's, it's really not your fault. The ascension has kind of perhaps been underreported for 2,000 years now, and even preachers have been doing it for a long time as well. 
But, but the ascension is, at the center of the ascension, lies the key for Christian confidence in the world. For Christian confidence in the world. What, what, what do I mean by that? I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you are, when it comes to doing the work of Christianity, like Jesus, we're going to read in this passage, tells his disciples to go tell other people about him. When that work is put to you, if you're anything like me, you feel pretty inadequate. <laughs> like, like, really, I'm supposed to be the one that in turn takes this. Like, I feel pretty inadequate of that. Like, I observe the life of Jesus, and my life falls so short of that life. Anybody else agree? Our lives fall short, so far short of the life of Christ. Perhaps you think you're inadequate, not authentic enough, not creative enough, not courageous enough, not sacrificial enough, that you couldn't give up control of your schedule like that. You couldn't actually find the energy to do something like this. I think when we actually begin to contemplate what it actually is that Jesus is asking us to do with regards to carrying forth his mission into the world, all of our inadequacies just bubble right up and come straight to the surface. And we feel like, wait, really? Me? If you feel this way, the ascension is actually for, for you. For you. Because the, the 30,000-foot view of history says this event of the, of the ascension, Jesus leaving the reins of his movement that he started to his followers, the historical view says it doesn't matter. It went forward. It went from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. People felt inadequate from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, until it eventually gripped almost the entire world, like Dave talked about last week. It gripped the entire world and has changed almost everything. This is actually the plan all along. And so we're here in the book of Acts, written by a guy named Luke, who actually isn't one of the disciples. He penned the gospel of Luke, but he's not one of the disciples. And, and so he, he wrote the gospel of Luke, and the gospel of Luke is all about the life of Jesus. The, Jesus comes on the scene, his teaching, then, and then his miracles, the powerful things he did, and then it goes into his death and resurrection and concludes with a couple of sentences on the ascension there in, in Luke. But then he moves on to his second work, which is the book of Acts, where we are today. And the, the book of Acts really unpacks the first couple decades of the Jesus movement, uh, or you could say the church. So you could think of Luke, this is unpacking the life of Jesus. Acts is unpacking the life of the church. And the event that brings both of these together, the hinge between them both, is this thing called the ascension. This thing called, he gives a couple of sentences to it at the end of Luke, then he picks it back up again and acts to give more detail to it. It's the, it's the hinge. This event is the hinge between the life of Jesus and the life of the church. It's the critical event which enables the life of Jesus to funnel to the life of the church. That's what Luke would say. So let's read about it. He just kind of mentions it in passing at the end of Luke. That's how we've come to Acts, because in Acts, he actually takes the time to unpack the narrative and conversations that surrounded it. So let's unpack it together here. We're going to read through it, beginning in Acts 1, verse 1. He says, I wrote the first narrative. He's talking about the Gospel of Luke, which discusses the life of Jesus, Theophilus, um, Theophilus, or, or Theophilus, or however you want to pronounce it. This is... Um, 
the guy who, who Luke imagines as his reader. It's the same for the Gospel of Luke. Some people think this is the person who actually funded Luke's writing process, his writing projects, you know, that kind of paid him to interview witnesses, put it all in written form. Some people think this is just kind of an, an imaginary person. The, Theophilus means God lover, but in the way that Luke talks to him, it, it doesn't matter which camp you choose, but it's clear that Luke sees Theophilus as a new or, or recent convert to Christianity, and he's writing, he says this specifically in Luke, he's writing so that, that this new convert might have more confidence in the things that they've come to believe about Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's his goal of writing it and why he's writing it to, to uh, Theophilus. Okay, I lost a page here. Okay, so I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen the apostles. Those would be the 12 disciples minus Judas. We're down to 12 here. Um, or we're down to 11 here. Uh, after he had suffered, that's after Jesus had, had died, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Um, what is he saying here? These convincing proofs are the fact that Jesus was raised again in bodily form. That they, and the other Gospels talk about this, that he ate with them, that he talked with them, that he let them touch him, that he went around with them, that Jesus was alive in bodily form. And this called um, convincing proofs word in Greek is a really interesting one. It's one that Aristotle used to say something that cannot be otherwise. Like the only explanation we have is that Jesus's body was a real body, not a ghost. This is Jesus showing up in the flesh. Other historians of Luke's time, like Josephus, Dionysus, they, they would use this word to talk about a lot of different eyewitness events that came together to force one conclusion, that Jesus's body raised from the dead, okay? So this is the convincing proofs that he's talking about. Appearing to them over the period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And, and Dave really outlined the events of these 40 days. Last week, if you were here, Jesus uh, kind of shows up. He appears in different places. He eats with the disciples. He, they actually all take a trip out to Galilee together. They come back uh, at different times. He just kind of commits B&Es, you know, breaking and entering into their rooms. Although he's not really breaking, he just kind of appears, you know. This is what Jesus is up to for 40 days, just in and around the disciples. I don't know where he is when he's not with them. You ever think that question? I thought that question this week. Like, is he just skipping rocks on a lake? What is he doing when he's not with them? I don't know. Okay. But anyways, he's doing a lot of things for 40 days. And then in, in verse 4, it says, while he was with them, you might have a footnote there in your Bible. Uh, this Greek word is a strange, rare Greek word. Sometimes it means eating with somebody. And so you could even read this as, while he was eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Okay, and now, we're going to move on to verse 6, and verse 6 starts with this, so when they had come together. And so this could just be a, a different event uh, than this picnic, unless they're having a picnic outside, because this, verse 6 is where the, the formal narrative of the ascension is going to start, where Jesus is going to leave. Um, so it, it could be just a different time shortly thereafter, this uh, conversation they had in verse 4. And it goes like this, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has sent, set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now he's going to ascend. He's, he's going to go up. He's going to go up. And, and Luke wants to make one thing very apparent in these last three, these last three verses, okay? That the disciples saw this with their eyeballs. Okay, so he's going to use five different verbs in these next three verses that are all about how these guys saw this. This isn't something they imagined or talked about. This maybe this will happen. This is something they saw with their eyes. So after he had said this, and this is happening on just outside of a town called Bethany, which is where just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, this is what Luke tells us back in Luke, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem in the town called Bethany, which is actually where Jesus stayed every night in the last week of his life. He'd, he'd be in Jerusalem for the day, do some stuff, go back to Bethany, sleep for the night, go back to Jerusalem. So they're in Bethany at this point. This is where this is happening. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now this is pretty crazy stuff. This is pretty crazy. Jesus ascends into the sky, much like a superhero. Maybe you did talk about your superhero movie in that conversation with lots of people looking up at him. He just starts floating. This is why it's called to become the ascension, because he literally just started ascending. But where did he go? Where did he go? The stratosphere, the moon, Mars. Like, what is Jesus doing? Where did he go? Luke makes it really clear in these verses, three times in these three verses, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, he says. Into heaven. He's, he's actually not ascending in this physical created place. He actually, until he becomes eclipsed by a cloud, it's almost like he, he steps out of our space-time continuum, steps back into God's in heaven, that space-time continuum, wherever that is, whenever that is. It's, it's like he translates. He, he transcends our realm, and he goes back into the realm of just God again. This is the ascension. And this is some pretty crazy stuff. And some of you might be like, how many more crazy things are you going to ask me to believe, Ryan? <laughs> how many more? I'm already trying to stomach that God is Trinity, that he came to this world as a human baby somehow. That's strange. That he did some crazy miracles, that he died quickly on a cross because he was experiencing the wrath from his father for, for my sin, which somehow time traveled back and was put on him, but that then he was raised again. That's like, these are all really crazy. Now you're, like, inviting me to believe this other crazy thing, that he just starts floating and just disappears? <sighs> What's going on here? I think I'm particularly sensitive to this right now because we just went through season of Alpha where a lot of people are asking a lot of questions about how insane the Christian story really is. And I'll admit to you that it's true. This is another thing that, that Christians lean into and, and believe took place by faith. But the good news is, is that we're while we're going down the rabbit hole, we're not all the way to the bottom yet, but we're getting really close. Maybe the all the way to the bottom are the events that happened on, on, at, at Pentecost, which is on one page here. But we're getting close to the end of the crazy things that, that involve the, the Christian faith. And, and so just, just stick with it. It's a really fair question. Just stick with me, okay? You're almost there. You're almost there. This is like the very close to, to the, the end of the supernatural things that, that is all about Christianity. 
You made it this far. And these verses, they actually explain something really beautiful that all of us really have a question about that we talked about last Sunday a little bit. These verses unpack why exactly it is that Christianity was able to sweep the face of the globe. These verses unpack why it is that Christianity was able to be successful when its founder, who was the central piece of evidence himself and was the the best human to ever walk the earth, even though he left, how is this movement able to persist and continue? These verses tell us that. And these verses tell us that apparently the plan was to go with these poor dudes from the countryside. They are the future. Wow. Wow. And so it's my hope today that the ascension, because this is how Luke is using it, can build up your confidence. That the ascension can speak to you and tell you God can use you. God wants to use you. And God will use you if you will let him. And we're going to do that. We're going to unpack this message of the ascension in in three big parts here. Um, The spiritual, the powerful, and then witnessing. Then we'll get to witnessing. All right? All, those, all three of those things are present together in verse 8 when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. All three of those things are really function as the big, big subjects of the whole book of Acts. Let's talk about how they interplay so that we might discover, hopefully, if we can have the same confidence that the original disciples had, okay? So first, the spiritual. The ascension unlocked the spiritual, the Holy Spirit, for humanity in a way that they had never, we had not experienced it yet. Now, I'm using this word unlocked really intentionally because there's a door between, you can think of it between heaven and earth where the Holy Spirit is and and we are, and this door gets unlocked, and it's not actually until Acts chapter 2 that it gets flung open, okay? But, But the ascension is that which unlocks it. Jesus speaks twice in these verses, and it's probably on those two occasions, like I was saying, but he speaks twice in these verses, and the Holy Spirit is the subject both times. Both times, the Holy Spirit is the subject. It it takes center stage. Jesus is giving his disciples a heads up on this new reality that is about to grip humanity. And you might think, well, new reality? I don't know if this is a new reality. I mean, I read the Old Testament. There's plenty of Holy Spirit coming into certain individuals at certain times and empowering them to do some pretty crazy things, crazy things that even would come upon prophets and judges and kings that change the course of history in, in incredible ways. You know, like we have a category for this. And I said, that, that's a great point. The Spirit, it does come, come down to earth at so many points in these Old Testament scriptures. It, it, it's amazing. But Jesus is anticipating an event that's altogether different than everything that's come before. That's altogether new and, and, and fresh and, and a whole different category than all these other spirit interactions that we have in the Old Testament. He's leaning on the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied to it that go a little bit like this. I'm just going to read these for you. We don't have slides for them. Um, Isaiah 32. Just listen. Isaiah is speaking. He says, For the palace is going to be deserted. The busy, season will, the, the busy city will be abandoned. The hill and the watchtower will become barren places forever. It will become the joy of wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Until the spirit from on high is poured out on us, then the desert will become like an orchard, and the orchard will seem like a forest. And 12 chapters later in Isaiah 44, God is speaking this time and says this, And now listen, Jacob, my servant, he says, 
Listen, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear. Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. Or in Ezekiel chapter 11, God says, I will give them a new heart of integrity, put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. He says it again in chapter 36. And then, of course, in Joel chapter 2. After this, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and, and young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on male and female slaves in those days. The activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, nothing like these predictions. Nothing like it. When we see the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit showing up in the Old Testament, it's to zap a person, zap another person, maybe zap two, a few people at once. It's not a pouring. It's not universal in scope. It's, it's certain people at certain time for, for certain places and events. It's not this pouring out, this pouring out that's going to result in this pouring out of like, how are you going to gather it back up? The Spirit's going to come, be poured out on many, and he's going to stay. He's going to stay. This is what happens in a few days, Luke tells us. And Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 in his sermon to explain it in uh, in, in Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to pull out a couple verses here it's that, where he talks about this. Because the Spirit gets poured out. And Peter in Acts 2, cha- two verses, uh, verse 32 puts it like this. He says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. You see how identical that is to to verses 4 here and 6? And he has poured out what you both see and hear. Pouring out has happened. The the, the ascension or the translation of of Christ is the, the very crucial step to him going, receiving the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father is what these, Peter and Luke are telling us, and pouring it out on his followers as they wait for him on all flesh. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples in Acts chapter 1, I have to go run an errand. Although he's not coming back with milk, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. I have to run this errand, the most important errand run ever. Now, Trinity is all over this passage. Very few places, actually, in the New Testament where you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present in in one passage. Uh, All three of these are are working together. You see that the Father promises is there. The the, the Son is is accomplishing there. The the Holy Spirit is, is, is empowering. This is how the Trinity typically works. This is how the Trinity works. Now, now, you may have heard it said before that like the Trinity, Trinity is not a real thing. That's just something that the church kind of invented and, and made up several years after. The Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, and, and they'd be absolutely right. The, the word Trinity is never explicitly put anywhere in the Bible. It's never, it's never used anywhere in the Bible. But let me ask you something. Is gravity a thing? 
No one's nodding. I'm really worried. <laughs> is gravity a thing? Of course it is. Was it a thing before we had a word for it? Still no one nodding. Guys, it was. Gravity was a thing before we had a word for it. Can you believe it? Just because we didn't have a name for it didn't mean it didn't exist. We just got a term for it when this guy named Newton finally took all the observations and pieced them together to understand the greater physical law of gravity at play. The, the Trinity works very similarly. We have all these observations about the Father and the Son and the Spirit throughout all the scriptures, and Jesus says a lot of things about the Father and, and the Spirit and how his relationship works with them. And all these observations make the most sense when described under the greater notion and law of the Trinity. Of the Trinity. Now, it would take us all day to examine all the different things that kind of feed into the creation of Trinity. And, and it took them a long time to actually put a word to it as the church. It took them a couple hundred years. But all three of the persons of the Trinity work together like this. The Father plans it. The Son seeks to accomplish it and does through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So if you go all the way back to the creation narrative, Genesis chapter 1, the Father has a plan for creation and speaks it. The Word, the Word which Luke tell, or which John tells us, is representative of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who became flesh and became called Jesus Christ, the, the eternally existent Son of God, the Word. And then we also see that the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters to make it happen. The Father plans, the Son seeks to accomplish it through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Trinity works. This is how they work together. Now, this is what I want you to see. With Jesus leaving, there's a big disruption to the Father's plan on earth then, is there not? There's a huge disruption to it. I mean, in Jesus' resurrected state, even in verse 2, Luke points out, he had, the Holy, or he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So, so in between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he's operating just how the Trinity always operates, empowered by the Holy Spirit to pass along the message to the disciples, what they needed to know in order to continue this movement. Then he says, I'm out of here. I have to go. I need to unlock this Holy Spirit for you. And Luke will show through the rest of the book of Acts this Holy Spirit isn't just for these 11 apostles, but for everyone. Spirit empowerment becomes the norm for every believer, not just certain leaders at certain times, not just Jesus and his apostles, but it's poured out on all followers. This Trinitarian disruption, it, it means what then? That Christ invites us into accomplishing God's will on earth through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He said things like this to his disciples. You will do greater things than I've done. What is he saying? He's saying there's parts of this mission that are, are coming that you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that are, that are greater things than you've seen me do in my ministry. This is why the church is called what? The body of Christ. The person of Christ goes back to heaven, but sends his spirit to come into followers and function as his body on earth. And as we walk by the spirit, we accomplish God's plans and purposes here on earth. This is the Trinitarian disruption. It's more like the great Trinitarian invitation for us to participate in the same way that Jesus was. 
So Jesus left to unlock the Holy Spirit for his followers, a door that's going to be opened in a couple days' time. And then the question really becomes then, doesn't it, to what end? Like, to what end is this Holy Spirit really coming? Okay, so let's move on to the power part of all of this, the power. Because the ascension isn't about unlocking spirituality for spirituality's sake. The ascension is about sending the Holy Spirit to empower Jesus' followers, to empower them. All these verses are just drenched in power language. They're just drenched in power dynamics. If you look up at verse 3, Luke tells us Jesus was teaching his disciples about what over the previous 40 days? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so it's only natural for the disciples then, in all of these discussions of power, to ask questions of power. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time, they say? Or, or, or you could rephrase it. Are you going to act powerfully now or what? It's not a stupid question. Not a stupid question. Jesus has been teaching them that he's the Messiah of a coming powerful kingdom of God. So like, so is this now? Is this later? Are we going to keep on trouncing around to like Galilee and different hills just like before? Like, when is this going to actually start happening, Jesus? They've seen him do some pretty powerful stuff before. They're like, when are you going to start doing that again? So they ask a question. There's three parts of this question that Jesus addresses in a really cool way. Um, When, who, and where. When, who, and where. Um, The first when, when are you going to exert this power, right? Like, are you going to do it now, Jesus? Are you going to do it now? And Jesus answers this pretty directly. And says, ah, you're on a need-to-know basis. Sorry. Like, oh, okay. Good to know. On a need-to-know basis. Great. Um, there's not much they can really say to that. You know, what are you going to do? Tell God you need to know more when he says, nah, not quite. No, I've tried that before in my own life. It doesn't work well. It never works well. Now the who of the question. Their question makes an assumption that Jesus wants to clarify as well. They ask, are you going to do it? When are you going to do this? And Jesus' response is, once you get the Spirit, then you're going to have the power. I think they kind of grasped this was part of the plan all along. They're like, okay, like Jesus, we're going to be doing this kingdom thing. We're going to kind of function in supporting roles. But here in a couple of verses, what they discover, a couple of minutes even from when they heard this, oh man, we're not supporting roles. We're lead actors here. This really rests on us. The third part of their question is where? They mention Israel. And so Jesus actually clarifies this as well. They say, are you going to Extend, are you going to work powerfully now to extend the kingdom of God? Are you going to restore this kingdom to Israel? And he actually redirects here as well. He says, not exactly. He says, my kingdom is going to start here at the centers of Israel, you know, Jerusalem and, and Judah and then go up to Samaria. But honestly, we're going to the ends of the earth with this thing. This thing is way bigger than your geopolitical framework. It's not to be contained by geopolitical borders at all, but go beyond them infiltrate all cultures and seep into all the other geopolitical borders. That's what my kingdom is going. That's where it's going. Like, you guys are just thinking about Israel. We're going worldwide with this thing. Um, So what is the kingdom? What is it then? I find the most helpful way to begin to define the kingdom of God, it actually comes from the Lord's Prayer. Um, The the Lord's Prayer starts like this. Our, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which is essentially saying, God, would everybody see you for who you are, you know, and, and see how valuable and, and, and worthy you are. And so when they come to you, may they hallow you and just see how incredibly, immensely priceless that you are. Hallowed be your name. 
But then the next line is very interesting. It goes like this. It goes, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, God's kingdom is put there in conjunction with his will being done. So it's very similar to any king. Their kingdom is where their will is accepted and obeyed. And so most abstractly, God's kingdom is anywhere his will is accepted and obeyed. It's fully done in heaven. The prayer here is that it would come to earth and happen here as well. And here's the deal. Um, Jesus, when he showed up 2,000 years ago, he shows up to a culture that already believes in this God, that already believes in this God. And, and, and the way that they, they, can't help, they can't help it, but they keep doing it, they keep thinking about the kingdom of God like this. When the kingdom of God comes here, there's not going to be this rampant prostitution and adultery around here like we see in the Roman world. When the kingdom of God comes into Israel, there's not going to be all this killing and murdering that we see all over the place. When the kingdom of God comes into this nation, Israel, we're not going to see all this cheating and stealing that's all over the Roman world. These tax collectors are just pocketing so much for themselves. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. We don't just need the kingdom of God for society. You need the kingdom of God in your heart. God's will isn't being done there. What a, you want to talk about prostitution and adultery? Well, let's talk about lust. You want to talk about killing and murder? Let's talk about resentment in your heart. You want to talk about lying, stealing, cheating? Let's talk about coveting. Jesus transitions everybody's notion, or he's trying to. People take a long time to get The disciples still haven't caught up here. Trying to transition the notion of the kingdom from an out there thing, God's will being done out there, to God's will being done in here. Kingdom starts here. And it begins to work itself out, inside out, you could say. Because the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, where he pours out the spirit on his people to empower them, was meant to have God's will first and foremost begun to be pursued in their own lives. In their own lives. And on that basis, society would be completely changed. His desire was to powerfully grip the individual, and once he had, then release them to witness to other individuals. Uh, so let's move on to, to witness then. The Holy Spirit producing the power for the believer to witness about Jesus Christ. Okay, these, like I said, these three subjects all come together to function the big ideas of Luke's work in Acts. Uh, we actually did a sermon series on it uh, wow, a long time ago now, but we took a almost a year to go through Acts, and we entitled the whole thing, Witness. Witness. This is one of the biggest themes in the book of Acts. We're going to see these, uh, we're going to see the Holy Spirit witness to Christ through his followers for the first couple decades of the church, and it's been like that ever since. But, but it's over 28 chapters we see the Holy Spirit powerfully work through weak and imperfect people. That's what, that's what you see. Weak and imperfect people to make the name of Jesus Christ known in the world. What did Jesus mean with this word witnessing? What did he mean? Well, to be certain, the apostles were to proclaim and testify to the things that they saw happen. Like much like a witness and a stand in a courtroom. This is what I saw happen. This is what I observed. But it goes a little bit further than that, actually. It's not just what they saw happen. It's actually their interpretation of those events. And their interpretation of those events, we actually see throughout the Gospels, Peter throws himself before Jesus and says, 
You are the Son of God. You are the Savior, the Redeemer of the world. So, so witnessing, it includes a proclamation of these historical things that, that they witnessed and that, that happened, but it also includes an interpretation. This was the Son of God. He called himself the Son of God. He did things, and things happened to him that, that only could happen to someone who was completely divine. And, and he said it all linked up like this, and now as we actually unpack these Old Testament scriptures afresh, and he teaches them to us afresh over these 40 days after he raised again. It's a great example of that in Luke chapter 24, by the way. Now that we see him doing he he is the Messiah. He is here to come and save the human race from themselves, from one another, from, from dark spiritual forces of this world but they personally were sure that he was the divine son. This is part of witnessing, not just the events, but the, they have confidence in the interpretation behind them. Luke, for instance, probably never saw Jesus Christ with his own eyes, but he's witnessing to us here. And the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts, he, he's witnessing to us here. And Christians for 2,000 years have been witnessing. They've been proclaiming both the events and their faith that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, the Son of God come to take away the sin of the world. Now, when it comes to witnessing, this is what I'm sure brings up feelings of like complete inadequacy in us. It, it, it does for me. I, I'm sure that many of us don't feel like we can articulate this in the right way, that, that, that we're smart enough to do it, that we can't summon the courage or the energy to actually lean into it or think that we'll actually have the right thing to say at the right time. Or we even have the creativity to bring up these conversations in the first place. Like, I get that. And that's actually the point. These two angels show up. Back to the narrative. These two angels show up, perhaps in the same two angels in the resurrection scene. They show up and, and they look at the apostles that are standing there, and they say, men of Galilee. It's very interesting. They're never called men of Galilee anywhere else, but right here they call them men of Galilee. Do you notice that? It's very strange. And I wonder if this is ironic. If you were to say that the Jewish messianic movement that was to start in Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth was to be headed up by a bunch of dudes from Galilee, they would have laughed you out of town. And in fact, they probably did. The, the Jewish religious elite would laugh at the prospect of the Messianic movement coming from a group of poor, ragtag fishermen of Galilee. No social pedigree. It's a bit like saying the next startup in Washington will come from Olympia. I'm sorry if you're from, from, from this place. It just boggles my mind that our state legislators are there, that that's the capital of the state. There's 30 to 40 times the population up here in the Seattle, Tacoma, Bellevue area. If you were to say there's a new innovative thing that's happening, that's going to grip and go the entire length of the earth, and it's coming out of Olympia, we'd be like, surely, surely not. Surely. This is the only thing that was going to make these men of Galilee start a movement and for it to work would be the hand and spirit of God himself. It's the only thing. The Holy Spirit is going to have to empower this thing. Can anything could come out of Nazareth? That's what was said about Christ. The only way. It had to be the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul would put it like this in 1 Corinthians. We preached through this passage a little over a year ago. Chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling 
Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, that which is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing that which is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. God didn't choose you because you are adequate, but because you are inadequate. He didn't choose you because you're strong, but because you're weak. He didn't choose you because you're brilliant, but because you are not. This is the crux of the gospel message. This is why Jesus leaves to demonstrate the power of God in the world that he comes down to inadequate and, and, and in people who are incapable of even thinking of how to put forth a movement to expand the entire world. But it happens. It happens from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. The Holy Spirit powerfully moves one inadequate through one inadequate population to the next and next and next. And we're here today because of the witness of each generation where they, in their inadequacy, and them feeling like they were not sufficient to carry this great message forward, they, in some sense, took the faith and put their neck on the line and passed down the events that we read here in the scriptures and their faith in them that it meant that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's why we're here today, not because of powerful people doing powerful things in the Spirit, but because of weak people allowing a powerful Spirit to work through them to bring the witness of Jesus Christ and his name into the world. This is what the ascension tells us, that the Holy Spirit, it transcends our inabilities, that it transforms our inabilities. It works through us even though we're unqualified, weak people. This is what Luke wants to tell his new convert, Christianity. Take heart, because God used these guys, these men of Galilee. He can use you too. Now, what does it actually mean to witness? I want to give you guys something practical today because this has all been fairly abstract up to this point. I kind of get that. Um, I think there's three big puzzle pieces to witnessing. Uh, it's kind of like those, if you've ever seen those kid puzzles that have like this, this like, only a couple big pieces because they're not quite smart enough to do anything else. You know, just the big, there's like three big pieces that when they, they get put together, you see the whole picture of the Christian witness comes together. Um, first one goes like this. We've touched on it a little bit already. Uh, think of your life. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you the power to begin to experience the kingdom of God by first giving you the choice to make God as your king. Witnessing it starts from the inside before it actually moves out. To make him the ultimate thing to be worshipped in your life, the Holy Spirit comes and breaks the chains of spiritual bondage and gives you the power to choose God as your king, to choose God as your father. Over the gods of this world, over the father of this world, Jesus says, equates him with the devil. Devil, the father of the world. They work together to enslave you to sin to make you absolutely miserable. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you the power to choose God. We, there's so many gods of this world. If we, we could get together and easily make a list of like a, a hundred of them, but, but this is the first way that the kingdom of God comes into your life is to empower you to choose God. 
Now, now we don't always choose God, okay? So don't get me wrong. We fall short all the time, but the presence of the Holy Spirit means that there's typically a fight when that temptation comes up. And, and when we do fall short, we feel the conviction about it. And, and also, that conviction actually makes sin pretty unenjoyable, doesn't it? <laughs> a good way to know if the Holy Spirit is present in your life is that sin becomes unenjoyable really, really quickly now. <laughs> you can't really enjoy it for very long. It's lost its luster. So your life lived following him is the first part of witness. Um, You could say like this, what has God saved you from? Where would you be if it weren't for your relationship with God? Get a pen and paper and spend some time reflecting on that and writing that down. It's the most practical thing you can do with this step. Write that, what, what would I look like absent the work of the Holy Spirit powerfully gripping my life and making God my king and me viewing him as my good, good father. What would that look like? Take some time to write that down. Talk about that in your cohorts. What sin has he delivered you from? What misery has he rescued you from? What gods has he saved you from? That's the first piece of witnessing, I think. The second piece um, is that the, the Holy Spirit, when it comes to witness, empowers people to prioritize the local community and body of believers in what's come to be called the local church. God's people gathered together. When they're seeking his will collectively, that's a place where God's kingdom is especially made manifest. The body of Christ that we talked about earlier, when God's people come together and relate to one another as God would have them do, that is, as family, when they seek to know more about him together and praise him, when they remember Christ and what Christ has done for them, when they comfort one another, when they encourage one another, when they urge one another uh, towards following God here in this life, the kingdom shows up. When the Spirit empowers believers towards the end of being the church, that is, by loving one another and serving one another, that's like when they receive love, when, when they receive service from one another, when, when they adopt the notion that, that, that the, the community of God is both blessing and burden for one another in this beautiful, that's when the kingdom of God begins to break into their midst. When they worship together, we hope that, that your will be done. <laughs> On earth as it is in heaven, when we come together, we get a glimpse of heaven together as a church on Sunday mornings as we worship. That's one of our, our big hopes, that God shows up in, in a way because we're, we're leaning into his will for his people collectively gathered together. So the second part of the Christian witness is Christians loving one another as family and worshiping the good Father together. This is the aspect of witnessing that Jesus kind of nodded to at the Last Supper when he was talking to his disciples. He said, they'll, they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. How are you participating in Christ's body? How are you receiving and extending the love that Jesus Christ has extended to you through the Holy Spirit? How are you coming together to worship this God who is so mightily and powerfully act to save us? The second big piece. Now, on, on to part three. Um, those first two methods of witnessing are, are great, but they don't really carry the full weight of the word witnessing. The full picture really can't come into view without this last piece, because if you do these things, but don't actually explain them to anyone, it's not really witnessing. Until you connect the activities of, say, like not smoking marijuana to your friends, 
or until you connect the activity of, sorry, I can't go on that hike with you guys today because I have to care for my Christian brother or sister in this wish. Until you connect that with words that are actually coming out of your mouth uh, that proclaim, you know, Jesus, (laughs) it's not exactly witnessing yet. We need that third puzzle piece to come in because fundamentally, witnessing is a proclamation of who Jesus is, what he did, and why you follow him. Who he is, what he did, and why you follow him. This is what Jesus has in mind with this statement, witnessing. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what, witness, it's primarily speech. Now, I don't think that Jesus envisioned this necessarily, doing this with each and every person you meet on the road. So take a breath. It's okay. I'm not going to say, you're going to go out and get your, you have a quote of witnessing to do this week. Get on to it, you know. No, that's not how this works. It's when the Holy Spirit comes in power upon you, then you witness. And so in your relationships, Jesus definitely envisioned you as having significant relationships with people who are not his followers. And so as you're in those relationships, you yield and you ask and you look to sense if the Spirit would have you present any witness to them. It's not necessarily, it probably won't be all the time. It may be a time here, it may be a time there, it may be at the exact moment when they need it most. This is how witnessing happens. But you need all three parts if you're going to even do that. You just can't have personal holiness and proclamation without a family to invite them into. I mean, because if you can't learn how to live and love the family of God, both the blessing and the burden of it, like we talked about, if you can't learn to do that, what makes you think you can do that with them if they're actually to become a Christian through your witnessing? Praise God. I've actually been part of communities that we thought we could do this, and and it actually blew up because we didn't know. We didn't know how to love one another well. Also, you can't have church family, like the church family part of witness and proclamation part of witness without, personal hold, without the personal holiness part of it. Your witness will actually ring hollow at that point. Anyone who might accept it will quickly conclude that, that it's unimportant how they pursue the kingdom of God in their own life. And what you're really doing probably at that point is just inviting them to a social club. Not so much a place where the kingdom of God is going to grip them and change them and transform them, but just a social club. We need all three of these puzzle pieces for witnessing to take its full effect to bring people to the foot of the cross into the kingdom of God and get them to a place where they can experience the outpouring of the Spirit on their lives, powerfully change them and transform them, and in turn turn them into people who might witness. So the Ascension says that, that you can be encouraged and you can take courage when leaning into witnessing. You can lean into explaining why you do what you do and the world looks at you and says, that's a bit strange, isn't it? You say, yeah, it is. I'm gonna go to church tomorrow morning. I don't really wanna go out tonight. That is strange, I get it. But ultimately, it's, a, it's adopting the mindset that Jesus' actions have given you life. And, and while it might look strange and even dreary from the outside, on the inside, you've discovered a well of joy and a well of peace And they can too if they would begin to trust him in the same ways. The Ascension says that the Holy Spirit has empowered Christians to have those conversations for millennia. Christians who felt scared and weak and vulnerable and isolated, overburdened, low on energy. The Spirit has worked through God's people to do this for thousands of years. He's going to continue working through God's people to do it. The only question is, how are you going to let him?
Pray with me.